welcome to another episode of Pep Talk. I'm Christy and I'm joined by my intriguing co-host, Andy Bannister. Andy, hello. Intriguing. That's that's an intriguing adjective you've chosen this morning, my friend. I know. It's because you called me intrepid in the last episode. And so I I thought I'd do something, you know, that begins with an I and, you know, that was the only thing that came to Uh, mind. And you are intriguing, as is our guest today. He is, yes. Isn't he? Um, Dan, hello. Welcome to the show. Hey, Chrissy, it's great to be on. Well, we're, we're really looking forward to our conversation with you today, Dan. You are um, a speaker for Questioning Christianity. Um, and you have, we were just talking before we started uh, recording about a whole host of things that, that you're involved in, which um, we'd love to kind of touch upon in part. But to begin, we'd love to just hear your story. Please tell us, you know, a little bit about your background and maybe one or two formative events for you. Great. Yeah. Well, in case your listeners haven't picked it up yet from the strange accent <laughs> they're now listening to, I'm Australian. Uh, I was born here and this is the crucible of Darwinian natural selection because oh, here yeah. on our continent, everything is trying to kill you, uh, which means you grow up with a high degree uh, of uh, possibility of being an elite sports person. As a result, sadly, I missed that boat. Uh, I love my cricket. I love my footy. But for the most part, uh, I'm just an average player on those uh, on those fields but I kind of grew up uh, in Melbourne and Brisbane on the east coast of Australia and had a pretty normal average Aussie life uh, Australia's pretty secular I think in its dominant outlook there's strong religious backgrounds and a lot of people who identify as being Christian still in the census but for the most part it's such a laid-back country and decent lifestyle that most people don't give much thought to the God question uh, I grew up with, with um, folks who were Christian and took us to church when I was young um, but when I was nine probably one of those key events in life was uh, on a family holiday we had a car accident where my mum headbutted a truck at high speed um and that was a, a life-altering event for our whole family. Um, she uh, received really bad head injuries as a result, as well as other things, and uh, was airlifted to hospital where um, they performed emergency surgery to remove a third of her skull. Um, and it was after the surgery that um, the doctor said to my dad, look, she she's had a really significant trauma here and it's unlikely she'll come out of it the, on the other side. And if she does, she'll be very different. Um, this is significant brain damage. And so I kind of grew up through my late childhood and then teenage years with the scripts flipped a little bit from parent Mm. to child relationship. Um, And it never quite sat with me how if God really is there and he could have stopped it, why he would let that happen to mum and and by extension the whole family. Uh, And so I kind of took a bit of a backseat to the God question, didn't get involved with youth group or, or church in my teenage years. And it wasn't really till I finished school. I went to a state school uh, with a, a ton of mostly secular friends, atheists and apatheists and the rest of it. But um, I guess having seen the fragility of life in my mom, I wanted to make sure that I was going to use what time I had well and enjoy life. And so I probably had a bit of a deeper outlook than most of my other 17-year-old mates mm. in asking, why are we here? What should I be aiming for? And it was in the midst of asking questions like these that a friend of mine put a Bible in my hands and uh, just said, look, I think you should explore whether or not this Christian story has answers to some of the questions that you're asking. And for a whole host of reasons that I won't go into, some of them romantic interests, uh, I ended up reading as much as I could, as quick as I could, (laughs) and uh, found myself compelled by the portrait of Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, Most of the Bible confused me, but these stories about Jesus, it felt like he was just reading my mail. And that the kind of questions I was asking for, for meaning and purpose, for significance, were ones that he was speaking about 
uh, but it's pointing mostly towards him as the source of meaning and purpose and fulfillment and hope. And uh, so I find myself having a profound spiritual experience mm-hmm. and encounter with a sense of love and guilt and wonder as I was reading about Jesus, particularly in John's gospel and found by the end of it, I just believed in him. Uh, and that kind of prompted a journey of wanting to make sense then of what's this Christianity about and can it stack up when I'm asking bigger questions around suffering and meaning and purpose and uh, kind of led into what I'm doing today. Hmm. So now, of course, you run this uh, this outfit down there uh, down there in Australia called Questioning Christianity, and which I think it's a great title. Actually, but let's let's start down with that question that you yourself wrestle with. You know, I meet frequently people for whom the, the suffering question that you ran across uh, as a young person, as a young man, that is the show stopper. Um, they're not mm. asking the question in a theoretical way. Something, something has happened in their lives that you know has caused them to go, well, okay, if there's a God, where could he possibly be in this? How do you start? With that. I mean, there's all kinds of clever answers out there. There's meters of shelves filled with full erudite books written yeah. by people on that question. But it's such a personal question. When you meet somebody who's had that issue wrestling with something, where do you begin? Yeah, uh, I probably begin mainly for percussive force, sort of where I've ended up on that question, which is if I have to suffer, I'd much rather suffer with Jesus than without him. Because certainly there is a force to the intellectual problem of suffering and it's framed as a contradiction within Christian beliefs, all powerful, all loving God existing with evil and suffering, how? Uh, And so often the person who's asking from the outside saying, see, this is the problem you can't make sense of. But suffering is something that touches us all. And there are deep intuitions that we have in the face of suffering that this is wrong or it's not how things ought to be or that certain events really are evil and, and should be stopped. Intuitions that seem to make far better sense to me within the Christian story than within any other secular version of our world story. And so uh, I found, I guess, over time that whilst the Christian story didn't offer total answers to all of the dimensions of that why question, it does offer some answers. And it certainly makes more sense of our feeling that the train of this world is off its tracks because the Christian story starts with a world created for good, but now damaged by evil. And I think more than anything, it it offers a God who draws near to us, reveals the depths of his love for us in suffering alongside us and for us where his wounds speak to our own. And it actually offers hope. So you rewind to where I'm a nine-year-old boy and I'm watching what unfolds with my mom and our family. And you were to sell me two stories. One, completely random. It's chance. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just bad cosmic luck. Or two, you know what? Whatever happens here, this is not the end. That her death or her suffering doesn't have to spell the end of the story, but there is hope for a resurrection, for eternal life, for someone to draw meaning out of all of this chaos. Uh, And there's someone who promises to be with you through the midst of that. You're not alone. Uh, I know which of those two stories I would much rather inhabit. And so I think the Christian story speaks volumes to the problem of suffering, both in offering answers, but more so offering a way forward, offering hope. Uh, And that's probably where I'd start in a conversation like that. That's so beautifully um, said, Dan. Thank you so much. I'm just wondering, what was your initial um, response to that as a a nine-year-old and as you you grew up, like thinking about the the goodness of God and the hope and the comfort and rather suffering with Jesus. Did you ever have kind of a period where you were just angry? Like how did you come to that 
sense. Yeah, I wouldn't say angry. I, I appreciate that um, sort of probing as much as we can be conscious of how we thought and felt so long ago. Um, I'm probably going to misremember and imprint different things over those experiences. Uh, I just remember sadness. I think sadness was a real element of watching uh, my mum struggle to have to learn how to do things again, struggle with disability, struggle uh, with just her chemical imbalance and her brain being so off kilter that she would go from full rage to suicidal ideation to laughter and happiness at the drop of a hat without any control. And uh, I was just sad for her and sad for what that meant for my dad and uh, a loss of meaningful partnership and agency and, and know that he's carried that so beautifully over the years. So I, I wouldn't say anger, confusion and sadness would have probably been the two dominant feelings more so than anger directed towards God. Um, I think the confusion just made me take a back step rather than get become an anti-theist or something like that, um, wanting to go out and disprove God's existence. And so um, that's probably more the defining characteristic that I remember. Mm. That that confusion um, piece there is interesting. So we were, you know, as we were chatting before hitting the record and talking about the fact, you know, you do a lot of work with with young people and, and students and engage their their questions. And I know that one of the other questions you said that often comes up for people is another one that can have confusion attached to it. And it's this whole issue of the hiddenness of God, mm. right? And I find you know Christians can wrestle with that sometimes, actually, as much as as, as as non-Christians, but I, I, remember, I remember talking to a university student about two, three years ago, really interesting, who the conversation started with atheism, but he, by, the t- by the end of the conversation, he said something that really struck me. He said, he said, look, I'm, I guess I'm an atheist, but I don't want to be an atheist. I, if I could see God, if I could just see something, I want to believe, I just don't know how. Yeah. And it was quite a moving sort of conversation, really. How do we, it really is. How do we engage with that one? People who... But they're not hostile. They just just haven't seen God and, and almost wish that they had. Yeah, I, I think we ask a whole lot of questions to draw out a person's story because you're right. There are dimensions to the hiddenness of God that touch unbelievers, people who say, look, I'm willing to believe if only meaningful evidence was presented to me. And then there are dimensions to that question which really touch believers who are experiencing seasons of doubt or dark nights of the soul. They say, I don't feel my faith the way that I once did, or relationship with an all-powerful God hasn't exactly turned out how I expected. Uh, God doesn't seem to answer my prayers. Heaven seems shut or silent, the God-forsakenness in experiences of life. And, And so this is a really deep question, and it's one that I found coming up in the Bible a lot. And not just in the literature of the Psalms and the questions that David cries out, where are you, O Lord? Why do you stand so far off in times of trouble? Um, Those sorts of experiences. But it's on the lips of Jesus himself. Um, You know, this God-forsakenness on the cross, a sense of heaven mourning the suffering of the Son of God, but the sky's going dark and heaven seeming shut and no answer visibly coming. Uh, And you see it in in some of the greatest figures, like the Apostle Paul speaking about despairing even of life itself or of many of the prophets in the Old Testament wishing that they perished at birth or some like thing. You realize, wow, there's a heaviness to a life with God that isn't always expressed in many of the praise songs in church. And so questions like this around making sense of God's presence and absence right across the biblical story, where I just think wrestling with these stories 
helps to get a picture about what God is doing. Um, in one sense, the Bible would say that there is a way that God speaks, that he speaks in nature and that he speaks in scripture and he, he dwells amongst God's people. And so I don't think we are devoid of God's revelation. I think there is adequate, even um, beautiful testimony that's given to him in, in the heavens above and in humanity and in history. But uh, it's not always compelling or overwhelming. Um, and, you know, I experience firsthand in conversations the frustration of some skeptics and doubters who wish they could believe if only they had a religious experience, pointing back to some of the things that I, I had around my conversion and uh, say, man, I, I wish I could give you that. Um, I don't know why God isn't revealing himself more actively to you in this way. But there, there are some things that I stumbled across within the Christian story that I, I did find helpful. Um, uh, sometimes uh, the Christian story says that God seems hidden because we're the ones hiding, not him. And that reality in the garden of the first uh, sort of effect of human sin, the shame of wanting to cover over ourselves from fig leaves from each other and then hiding behind fern bushes to hide from God. Um, there is a sense where we don't always seek in the way that God desires that we seek, the way that he's promised to reveal himself. Um, there's another dimension to God's hiddenness, though, where the Bible says that God hides to achieve some greater good, that in the same way that his end game is to develop wise, mature agents who are going to reign and rule with Jesus in the new creation. Well, developing that kind of agency sometimes actually requires a degree of his absence, that we learn to operate according to the gifts and capacities that he's given us to grow up and to take responsibility and to forge virtues and courage and character that we otherwise wouldn't have if he'd been overwhelmingly present. Like I think of that with my own little boys. Um, they'd love me to carry them everywhere or do everything for them. And no, it actually requires sometimes that I step back and have to learn things on their own for them to grow up into the role that they're meant to play in the world. Um, and there's other times where uh, God needs to be hidden in order for the cause and effect web of events that's necessary to bring about that end game uh, actually comes about. And it's a crude analogy, but you think, you know, the um, picture in the Marvel series in Infinity Wars where Doctor Strange looks at all the possible futures and whether or not they can finally defeat death, Thanos, uh, and have a great resurrection and overcome evil. And But to bring that reality about actually required that Doctor Strange disappear for five years. <laughs> And so it's, it's his knowledge of what needed to happen so that a complex web of cause and effect events played out exactly as it did that sometimes requires absence rather than presence and darkness rather than light for that period in, in order for the right things to line up to bring about God's final end game. And so there's, there's a few thoughts that I had. I'm like, oh, these, these are kind of helpful. They're inching us towards something. And then there's another way in which um, what happens with Jesus on the cross shows that sometimes God's absence isn't actually absence at all. That even though it looks like God is absent, actually he's present in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Uh, and so just our senses don't necessarily perceive the nearness of God or what he's doing in the world or the meaning that he's drawing through these events. So there's some thoughts I had on it. And, and there's one that teenagers particularly love. Uh, and it, it's more about how God chooses to reveal himself. And like, if his goal is not just that we believe that he exists, but that we believe in him, that we come to form a deep and meaningful relationship with him, then the means by which he reveals himself 
may actually be necessary to be what it is to to bring about that end. And let, an example would be you can imagine what would happen if I was to turn up uh, at the door of my now wife before we were married. She'd never met me before, but I knock on her front door and say to her, hey, I've been watching you every day of your life and I know everything there is to know about you and I'm madly in love with you and you need to be with me forever. Um, coming on that full and that strong would overwhelm any meaningful way that she has to form the kind of feelings towards me that's necessary to engender a yes. Right? Uh, that is not how relationships work. I'm probably walking out of that scenario in handcuffs or at least with a restraining order. Um, but if I gave signals of my interest from a distance, things that gave her signs that she had opportunity to reciprocate or to build those similar affections, or if I veiled my intensity for a little bit just to slowly try and win her over, and that would have a much higher degree of success than if I came on overwhelmingly. And I'm old enough to remember a brilliant movie that I watched growing up, Coming to America with Eddie Murphy, the original, not the terrible remake, uh, <laughs> you know, where there's the king of Zamunda where he wants to find a queen, but he doesn't just want her to love him for his role. He wants to find a woman who will just love and relate to him as he is, for who he is. And, uh, and so he moves over to Queens uh, in America and pretends to be a poor immigrant student just in order to try and win over the affections of a woman for his character, not for his money or his position. And, uh, and I just love that image. Uh, I think there's something similar in how God chooses to come humbly in Jesus, not born in a palace, but in a stable um, to be able to help win us over by who he is and not just by the raw degree of his power. Um, there's some elements there which uh, all feed into this hiddenness question. And so unless you get to know someone's individual story, you've got no absolute answers to the why, but you can start pulling in some of these resources to maybe help make sense of why God seems to be more absent than we would want him to be. Dan, thanks so much. There, That's um, disturbingly beautiful threads that you've just teased out you know about god's presence and, and absence and how what do you think it looks like um to to create a culture of like an incubator of such um evangelistic approaches in a local church context like how can we be creating those communities um with, with where one another um as brothers and sisters we're having those kinds of conversations and we're taking things in those directions as we reach out to friends and family and workers co-colleagues at work yeah that's really good um I, I think there's a number of ways you could do something like that i think part of that would be um creating spaces for it as the gathered church so i think sundays and special events where you're doing let's do q and a's once a month after a service or let's do some specialty training together so that we can talk about these things bringing people from the outside who might be helpful catalysts in preparing Christians for having better God conversations. Uh, that could be a key thing. I, I think in our medium groups, you know, a lot of churches break down into gatherings during the week where they meet in homes for meals and to study the scriptures. And part of that could just be developing a, a prayerfulness of spending five or 10 minutes praying for opportunities to actually share our faith uh, through the week and then come back and report stories on what happened to get excited with where God's at work together and to, to laugh over the times that we fumbled on those opportunities. Um, but just to build that expectation that God wants to move. And, and in those contexts, maybe do a little bit more rigorous training 
Uh, I can think of great resources like some of the solar stuff or even some of the videos that QC puts together where we're trying to create meaningful responses to these kind of questions in ways that are digestible and memorable so that others can use it in conversations with their friends and family. Um, So bringing some of those resources in and getting familiar so that people are writing down one or two dot points on what they might say if a question like suffering or hiddenness comes up so that they feel better prepared next time that happens. Uh, And then at just that individual level, I think people think thinking through carefully, uh, why do I believe in Jesus in a world of spiritual options? And why is Jesus good news for me? That why and what when it comes to the Christian story, uh, I just think are two things that we want to be preparing people to be ready to go with so that when they're having conversations at work or amongst family members and meals, that you've just got something ready and meaningful and sharp that you can ingest into those conversations uh, in a way that's helpful. So there's a few thoughts on big, medium, small. We actually put together a bit of a document for questioning Christianity last year, just called the game plan, helping Christians and church leaders think through this a bit. So that might be something we could uh, put in the show notes for people too. Mm. Well, it's hard to believe, but that has been kind of 20 minutes. We've, we, we've packed a lot into that, uh, Dan. Thank you for all of the wisdom and, uh, and practical stuff, very real answers that, that you shared. Look, for folks who've been intrigued and found this helpful and want to dig into more of what uh, you've done, what's the best place for people to find you and catch up with your your work and your colleagues? Where do, where do people find uh, find your stuff? Yeah, questioningchristianity.com uh, is our website. But probably our most active space would be on YouTube and Instagram. So Questioning Christianity QC uh, on Instagram. Um, you'll find us at QC Socials. Either of those, you'll be able to get the links, uh, I'm sure, in the show notes if you want to follow that through. Absolutely. We will indeed uh, put a link to Questioning Christianity there in the show notes. So, uh, Dan, it just uh, just falls to me finally to just, again, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for joining us uh, from the other side of the world. It's been a privilege having you. Hey, I'm honoured to be on with such intriguing hosts. Intriguing <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, join us next week, uh, two, two weeks' time, rather, for another episode of Pep Talk. And hopefully Christy will have discovered a different adjective to introduce me with, me with, me with or me her with. And, uh, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Hope you found it helpful. And uh, thanks for tracking with the show. Bye for now. Bye.